Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available now as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story. Uh, for more information about all of that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, authors, editors, publicists, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, today, I couldn't be more excited. We are talking with uh, none other than Stephanie Fretwell-Hill of the Red Fox Literary Agency. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I am thrilled to chat with you this morning. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I will never make you sit through me blundering through your biography when you're right here. Uh, <laughs> you can do a better job of it. So if you would give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Okay, well, um, yes. So I am a literary agent of authors and illustrators of children's books. Um, I tend to specialize more in picture books and middle grade, not so much YA. Um, I started out <clears throat> in, um, I started out selling foreign language rights at Walker Books in London. That was my first publishing job. And then, uh, I did that for about six or seven years. And then eventually I, um, became an editor. I moved home to Atlanta and I worked, uh, for Peachtree Publishers where I was an editor for about four or five years, four years. And then, um, and then I made the switch to um, becoming an agent in, two, uh, let's see, it was 2016 when I became an agent. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So um, were you a big reader as a child? When did you, when did you decide publishing is definitely you wanted to focus? Yeah, I, I was always a big reader as a kid. I, I definitely read especially a lot of really sort of series fiction kind of stuff for kids, like very sort of Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley Twins kind of stuff. I read tons of that when I was a kid. And um, so I always enjoyed reading. I didn't, I didn't really know that I wanted to have a career in publishing until I was a lot older. Um, and I had, you know, I had an old family friend who worked in publishing in the UK. And so I, it sort of was something in my mind that I knew someone could do, <laughs> but it wasn't until I think I was in my mid to late 20s when I um, thought, hey, maybe this is something that I would like to try out. And um, so, yes, I'm not somebody who had that linear career where you just know from the time that you're young that that's, you know, what you want to do. But um, I, I kind of had a, a, a curving route into it. I know you've done some writing. Did you ever want to, uh, did you ever think about being a fiction writer? Yeah, you know, I often have ideas. I feel like I have, um, I have like unwritten books in my mind that have been just sort of sitting there for a really long time. But um, there's something about the whole um, butt in chair 
fingers on keyboard thing that is hard for me to um, to focus on. And I really admire people who are able to do it <laughs> because something always interrupts me or I get distracted or I'll have a run of, you know, a handful of days or even a handful of weeks where I'm pretty focused on um, on trying to write. And then I just kind of get distracted by life or whatever. And um, so, yeah, so it's more just a it's something I do occasionally for myself, but it's never really materialized into something, you know, uh, that I would share publicly. <laughs> well, so far. <laughs> so far. It's possible. I can't rule that out in the future. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're working for Peachtree Publishing uh, in, in Georgia, and you're an editor with them. And I'm assuming what attracts you to PhD publishers is, is the huge salary that their editors get coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, editors, sadly, do not make a whole lot of money. <laughs> it's something you do for the love, I think. Um, and also, it makes it, uh, it's kind of a position of privilege, because because it is so such an underpaid job really that you kind of have to be in a good position to to not make very much money and be okay with that oh when uh, when did you decide go from i like books to oh this is what i want to do for the rest of my life or at least up until 2022 as we're recording this yeah yeah well that's a good question i um so I did a, a handful of odd things after I graduated from college, and one of which was that I um, I taught English in South Korea for two years. And when I was there, I I think I knew then, like, I need to find my career now. And I knew it wasn't teaching. And um, like I said, I had this old family friend who worked in publishing. So I kind of had this in the back of my mind, like maybe that would be interesting. So that the fact that I had worked in Korea actually sort of led to my job in London um, kind of indirectly because um, I, was, I was trying to move to England and I didn't have permission to work there. And so I had this sort of uh, visa issue that I was also trying to solve at the same time. And so I wanted to get into publishing, but I also wanted to live in this country and figure out how to do that. And so because I had a background or because I had just come from Korea and I had a little bit of um, Korean language skill and um, obviously this international experience, I started um, targeting foreign rights jobs because, um, you know, a lot of those foreign rights departments work, um, work quite closely with publishers in foreign countries, including in Korea and other um, uh, East Asian countries. So I I had a feeling that that was going to be something that sort of, um, that other applicants for jobs wouldn't have on their resumes. And that's something that's sort of important to the visa process that you have to have a skill that no locals have. So that was the reason that I started out in foreign language rights. And so, you know, I got so super lucky and I got this job at Walker Books, which is like one of the best publishers in the whole world. They're the, um, they're the parent company of Candlewick Press. And um, 
I mean, it was just an amazing place to work. It was a fantastic job. And my job was to go to Frankfurt and Bologna every year and to plan trips to places like Spain or Greece or, um, you know, to go visit publishers and get to know them. And so it was a lot of fun. And I was, you know, I don't know, I, I turned 30 while I was working that job. So I think I started that job, maybe I was 27 or 28. So it was a great time in my life. I was living in Europe and traveling all over and getting paid to do it. And, um, and I loved working with books. And then there was an experience that I had there. And it, it was kind of a convoluted reason that I ended up being the person to do this. But I, you know, one of the artists that Walker Books um, worked with for many, many years is um, Helen Oxenbury. And um, I was in this position where an American company was repackaging some old Helen Oxenbury books. And I was sort of the middle person between that American publisher and, um, and Helen herself. And so I had this experience where I was trying to talk to her about editorial changes that they wanted to make and, you know, calling her up and saying, oh, hey, Helen, it's Stephanie. Let's, <laughs> what do you, how do you feel about this? What if we package it like that? What, you know, kind of making suggestions. And I thought, this is what I really want to do is the more creative side of bookmaking. Because up until that point, everything I did with selling foreign rights happened after the books were made, basically. You know, I took a fully formed book or a mostly fully formed book to other publishers and said, hey, do you want to publish this? But that experience with Helen Oxenbury was like very much um, in the formative stages of taking this, this project in this direction or that direction or helping, you know, kind of smooth things over between her and the others and the American company, you know, being that, that sort of negotiator, I guess, in the middle. And, and that was an experience where I really knew then that I wanted to start being involved in the making of the books. So I thought, well, I want to get into editorial work. And um, because of my because of my visa situation, I was sort of tied to doing the job that I did at Walker for a particular period of time. And, um, and then I started, so I had done that for six or seven years. I, I was, you know, pretty senior um, foreign rights person. And then I tried to start looking for editorial jobs, but, you know, you start after you have six or seven years of experience in one role, and then you start applying for assistant positions in another role, people don't get it. <laughs> They're like, why aren't you applying for the foreign rights department? You have so much experience. And so I was kind of struggling to, um, to really even get interviews in editorial departments. And people were saying, you know, you're going to have to take a big pay cut. Like people just didn't really take it very seriously. And then around that time, um, my, uh, he was not my husband yet, but um, my the person who is now my husband and I decided that we were kind of interested in doing something different. And so um, we that was around the time that we got married and we moved back to the States, back for me and for him, it was the first time. But, um, and so when I moved back to the States, I really didn't have a plan. I, 
I wanted to continue working in publishing, but I really wanted to be an editor. I really wanted to get on the creative side of things. And we didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know what we were going to do. We just kind of pulled the trigger and did it. And um, so there was this period of time where I was really kind of in limbo and um, I didn't know where I was going to be. And then we ended up kind of accidentally settling back in Atlanta, which is my hometown. And um, so I... And I actually had known um, Margaret Quinlan, who's the, she was at the time the owner of Peachtree Publishers. I had known her from, um, before I had moved to England, I had done a brief internship at Peachtree Publishers. So I knew her and I got back in touch with her and said, oh, I'm living in Atlanta again. And what I really wanna do is editorial work. And she said, okay, come and be an editor here. So, um, so I did that for, four years. And then um, now I can't remember what the original question was. I'm really just rambling. <laughs> I can just keep talking. I don't remember. No, we're getting a very excellent sense of, of your journey in publishing and, and how you come to be where you're yeah. at. So, um, then, <laughs> so what the big change to editorial or to being an agent came when I had a baby um, and I you know, I was pregnant, I was waiting for this baby to be born, and I really loved my job, but I also knew that I had to figure out how I was going to take care of my child. Um, was I going to put her in daycare all day so that I could be in an office? And I, you know, I really did not, you know, <laughs> I did not make a lot of money as an editor, <laughs> which may shock you, but I was kind of being faced with paying essentially my entire salary to keep her in childcare. So I, it was, I would have zeroed out. I was not going to make any money and my kid was going to be in daycare all day, or I was not going to make any money and I was going to be home with my kid all day. So I kind of had to make that choice. And, um, and then I thought, well, what if there's something else I could do that keeps me involved in publishing and maybe can grow into something more down the line? And that's when I thought I could maybe become an agent. So I started um, talking to people who I knew who were agents, um, one of whom was Karen Grensick, who I had met at a conference at an SCBWI in Atlanta a couple of years before and she and I had really hit it off and had a great rapport and I thought, and she's such a kind person, I don't know if you've ever met her, but she just would do anything for, for you. She's just such a kind person. So I immediately thought of her as someone I could just at least talk to about what it's like to be an agent, how does it work? Um, and so she was somebody I talked to a lot during that time. And as the more we talked, the more it became clear that if I wanted to do it, I could join Red Fox. So, um, so that's what I did. I never went back to the office after, um, after my first daughter was born. And she was tiny. She was, um, I don't know, maybe she was three months old when we announced that I had joined Red Fox. And so she, I had her in my lap while I was fielding my inbox. And um, yeah, yeah, I didn't have to put her in any kind of childcare for another 
year and a half or something like that, (laughs) which was hard to juggle both of those things at the same time. But also as a new agent, I didn't have the, you know, you, it takes a long time to sort of build up the momentum of having a full list. I didn't have a full list. I only had a few um, clients and my few clients, we were just trying to get their very first deals. So I didn't have like a whole body of, um, books under contract that might have issues that need my attention that require contract negotiation and all that kind of stuff. It it was very um, much about just reading a lot of manuscripts, a lot of, a lot, a lot of manuscripts and building a list. And that was something that I could do at any time of day or night. And, um, and so that's what I did. I found scraps of time here and there. And I, and I built my list while, um, while my daughter was a baby. And then eventually she did go to school (laughs) and I did build momentum (laughs) and now things look a lot different. I spend, I spend my day in the office while my kids are at school and, um, and I have a lot of things going on. I can't believe that I used to do this with a baby in my lap. But it's uh, so wonderful that you were able to find a, a way to continue doing what you love while being there for first steps for, for all yeah. those early things. Yeah, definitely. It, it was really uh, a, a big part of it was about lifestyle and about designing the kind of life that I want to have and that I want my family to have. And, you know, it isn't it isn't the same as having having a job where you just go into the office all day and then you come home and your home life is separate from your work life. I feel like, and I feel like everybody kind of understands this more now, now that we've all, you know, experienced the pandemic and lockdown and all that stuff. um, Everybody's work and personal lives have sort of gotten real mushed up together, (laughs) but mine, I kind of made the choice to mush mine up together a few years before that, um, before all of that happened. So, um, it's, you know, you can't really separate your, your career decisions from your, um, life decisions. And that was a big part of it. But I also, um, have found that being an agent is really, um, it draws from the skills that I developed in the different roles that I had in publishing. So I, have the sales and contract negotiation um, type of skills that I developed as a foreign rights person. And that's a lot of fun. You know, I never, when I was a kid, I never thought of myself as a salesperson at all. Um, But there's a real buzz when you, (laughs) when you succeed and you place a book somewhere, there's a, a definite rush. You know, I, I dance around and I pump my fists and I run out and I tell my husband who doesn't, care. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's very exciting, uh, you know, that sales aspect. And I loved that when I worked at Walker. Of course, I worked in an office among my peers. And so they all got very excited (laughs) with me. But um, I also, like I said, I wanted that creative um, input as well. And as an agent, I am able to have a lot of creative input if I, if I want to and if it's, um, if it's helpful for me to do so. That, that was a little bit of a learning curve to try and figure out how much creative input is um, useful and how much is um, 
a waste of time, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and every situation is different, but um, I do get a lot of creative satisfaction out of what I do. And I do have editorial input into a lot of the projects that I work with. Um, and so I kind of get to do everything. Um, and I get to do it on my terms, which is great. And you start with uh, Red Fox and your, your, your home with your child. Are you straight commission at that point? Or is there some kind of salary to get you to... Okay, so it's, it's do or die. You got to get out there yep. and find those authors. Yep, you got to sell. If you want to make any money, you have to, you have to place books. So yes, I make, um, you know... And an author's contract with an agency is for whatever percent, say 15% commission. And then I make a portion of that and the agency makes a portion of that. So, um, but that's it. You got to sell a book if you want to make any money. So that, that was the other thing is in the very beginning, there was no money. And again, you know, it's a, it's a position of privilege to be able to say, guess what? I'm going to take this risk. And for the next couple of years, I might not make anything. And in fact, that really is, I remember, I remember telling someone that I had heard, telling some, uh, another agent that I had heard that it takes about three years to start earning a living as an agent. And that agent laughed and said, no, it's going to be more like five. <laughs> and um, I have found that that's probably true. Within three years, I was making some money, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't what most grown-up humans would consider living. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, I, I have contributed some small amount to our household, but. Um, also not paying for daycare is, is useful. Well, yes, when I factored that in, it really was financially for me, not a terrible decision at all um, because, because I got to be with my kid and that's what I wanted to do. I know not everybody, you know, that's not, not to say that that is the choice that everybody needs to make, but for me, that was what I wanted to do. And, um, and so when you factor in, yes, the fact that I wasn't paying for childcare, plus, I mean, I basically was already at where I was when I was working in an office, <laughs> when you just zeroed it out. And so anything that I made on top of that felt like um, icing on the cake, really, in those first couple of years. And then, so after three years, I was making a little bit of money. And then, yeah, I would say, um, I would say it's only been in the last um, two two-ish years that I'm like, oh, okay, now, now I earn a living. Now I have a job where I get paid enough to feel okay. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> Those are pandemic years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, strangely, the pandemic um, years have been good to me. Um, I, I, you know, of course, everybody was afraid in the beginning that it was the end of everything, but um, I, you know, I personally had two great work years, um, despite, despite all the challenges. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't, I have no idea why it worked out that way, but um, I, I have a, I have a feeling it's just coincidentally, you know, what I was talking about, that thing of momentum of building yourself up to a point where you have a full list where, your work is selling where, where your authors are a little bit more established. They're not all um, debut, you know, you're not trying to crack in the door with every single one of them. Um, I, I just happened to sort of hit that critical mass 
right around the time that the pandemic hit. Yeah, the pandemic is more or less incidental to that. I think so, yeah. Think so. And people continued to buy books, you know, publishers continued to acquire and, and, you know, I did like this. <laughs> well, uh, when I chatted with Mark Gottlieb, check the back catalog esteemed audience. It's a conversation well worth your time. I uh, uh -huh. talked about how a lot of uh, agents got intimidated by the pandemic. Like, oh, publishing is going to stop now. Yeah. So I'm just going to pull back and not submit. And he said, well, this was wonderful, a golden opportunity for me because I knew they were out and I could go in and, and, and make the deals. Right. Well, and I, I found that um, editors were often in, were really in one camp or another. And it, it 100% boils down to childcare. I think people who had small kids were not able to look at submissions <laughs> and people who did not have small kids were all over their inbox. They were, I mean, you were getting responses, like they were clearing out all of those submissions from, you know, the, the months um, and years leading up to that moment um, and just getting down to like zero inbox. <laughs> and so um, for some people you could submit work and be assured of a really fast response um, because I think a lot of people that was the, the outlet that they had was to work. Um, for other people, they're still behind and they're still struggling to um, climb back out of this hole that happened when they had their kids at home all day trying to administer their education for them and, um, and also work at the same time. You know, it's just, I think it was impossible for a lot of people, but I, but I do think that, um, yeah, you, you saw extremes for sure among editors. Something I personally underestimated, and I think a lot of people tend to, is just how much of an impact having a child is going to make on the rest of your life and how radically your priorities are going to shift. And yeah. I conceptually going in, because we, we put it off until we were comfortable enough to say, okay, well, we could yeah. have a child and make sure that the, the, the child we had had food. So that, <laughs> that's a good start. Um, but the the moment, oh, oh, never mind. Everything I thought mattered before is now second banana. This, this is a, this is everything. And yeah, I think I don't know why I bring that up, other than to see your shift from editing to literary agents, and also why it would make such a difference during the pandemic for those who are childless, um, who haven't had that experience. You, you don't know until you know. It's one of the few things where yeah. I, I find that's true. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, and I feel like. Um, Certainly since the pandemic and, and also kind of going back to the idea of like, you know, how your how your work life and your life life get all kind of mushed up together and the pandemic did that for kind of everyone. Um, you know, if if you have kids, the reason you're working is for your kids, you know, every, basically everything you're doing is to provide something for them. <laughs> and um, and then when you're kind of faced with the situation of trying to do it all at once it's really um it's it's really hard to do <laughs> it's hard to be a good employee or be a good worker and also be a good parent simultaneously um because something needs your attention and that means that something else is not going to get it um so yeah, so you have to prioritize. And when you're all cooped up together in a house together all day long, it's really hard, um, hard to figure that out. 
but of course, I think um, one of the real advantages of at least of being an agent, and, and probably to some degree, editors have this, maybe not quite as much, but, you know, it, it really is rare that anything that I'm doing is very, very time critical. Um, I mean, occasionally, yes, when I have like an offer, I don't want to wait. I don't want to, um, I don't want to make people wait for me. Um, or, you know, you have a sort of crisis situation, a, a fire to put out, those things definitely happen. But for the most part, most of what I do could be done at any time of day. So, um, I can, I can work after my kids are in bed. And it doesn't make any difference to the, my output, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I feel like that was the only thing that really, you know, that, that was how it worked for me anyway, was that I was able to um, let my kids watch a lot of TV <laughs> during the pandemic. <laughs> TV saved us and then I would work after bedtime. And that was, you know, that was kind of how I kept it going. <laughs> Plus maintaining that was one of our top priorities. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so you mentioned going to an office and I know that you're not located in, in California where the, the Red Fox Literary, the main office is. So do you yeah. rent office space? Where do you go? No, you're looking at it. This this is uh, this is a bedroom, a, an old bedroom in my house. It has koala bear curtains because it used to be my second daughter's um, baby room, and I never changed the curtains. <laughs> but um, all the bears yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, I have this uh, I have this bedroom. It's my space. It's a real mess. I <laughs> I won't wave the camera around. <laughs> But, uh, but I like it because it's mine. <laughs> so what, uh, what does your day look like at this point now that you are established and the, your kids are in school? At this You're point? in school. I have a, a six-year-old who is in kindergarten and I have a four-year-old who is at preschool and they're, you know, they're there from, well, our morning is all about getting them situated and getting them where they need to be. And, um, then I come up to my office and I sit down and work. Usually the first thing in the morning, there's a, I, I really, I've gotten to a point where I've got high volume email every day. <laughs> so in the morning, I spend a lot of time just answering questions, sort of reacting to, um, reacting to my inbox for quite some time and, um, and sort of prioritizing what needs to be done. I, for some reason, I have to keep a physical handwritten list. That's how I operate. <laughs> and like a to-do like list. I, I must write it down and I must cross it off. And then periodically when my list gets too messy, I take out a fresh page and I copy over all the things that haven't been done. So I write it again. And somehow that helps me know what matters <laughs> or what I need to pay attention to. And so, um, yeah, so I spend most of the morning kind of sorting through my email and deciding what needs my attention today. And, um, and then in the last few working hours that I have, I try to focus on 
um, the more proactive stuff. So sending out submissions, reading manuscripts, um, making editorial comments on manuscripts, um, you know, so, sometimes it's really uh, things like just following up, like record keeping, you know, that's a big part of it. I keep, keep a record of everyone I've submitted work to. And then if I haven't heard from them for a certain period of time, then I need to go back and I need to say, hey, have you read this? And, you know, so those kinds of record keeping things I'll do in the afternoons. Um, yeah, more creative stuff like, or, or proactive stuff, I guess is the right, the right word for it. Um, and then in the afternoon, my kids come home and I, I switch it off and I go down and I make dinner and try to clean up the mess and start it all over again. <laughs> so out of curiosity, when you're looking to follow up, what's a general rule of, of thumb for how long you should wait before you follow up or is there one? Yeah, I, um, my, my current cycle is I give editors about two months and then I follow up with a nudge and then I maybe give them another like two weeks say to respond to that. And then I follow up with a second nudge. And if, if I don't hear anything, then when I follow up with that second nudge, I move that submission into another section of my record keeping spreadsheet that is basically like rejections or lack of response. And then I just kind of consider that submission to be dead at that point, because some editors will, will never get back to you. That's just people have different ways of operating and some editors you won't hear back from. So I don't want to hang around forever thinking that this thing is going to happen. So I just move it over. We consider that a no and we move on. Um, so yeah, two, in general, the cycle kind of runs about two to three months and then it's time to submit again. Anybody who's listening to us, if they're waiting to hear from you on a submission, should they assume about two months is a good time? <laughs> ah, submissions to me. Um, I, that's a good question. I would love to say, yes, two months is what I would do. Um, I'm not super consistent about it. And I, in general, I'm usually close to submissions because I, um, I don't like to keep people waiting. And I know that I, my bandwidth is very, very narrow right now for taking on new clients. And so, um, but people who have been to conferences where I've spoken uh, have an invitation to, um, to submit. And yeah, I would say two months. If, if, if they haven't heard from me in two months, it's appropriate, certainly appropriate to say, hey, have you read this? <laughs> And that's a query or that's if you, they actually sent pages? Yeah, yeah. That would be if they've actually sent pages. Yeah. Gotcha. How, uh, now that you are established and you've got your client list, how actively are you looking for new clients? Well, <laughs> um, clients, good clients have a way of popping up <laughs> even when they're like mushrooms, you know, it's real hard. And, and especially when, you know, when you love, when you love to read and when you read something that is really exciting, it's very hard to say no. So I'm always kind of looking for a reason to say no, because my list is pretty full right now. I, and I kind of judge that I say it goes in waves really where I'll have, um, 
I'll have several weeks or a month or so where I feel like I'm just drowning and I'm just struggling to even respond to my current clients in a timely way or in the way that I would like to anyway. Um, and I just feel like I'm like constantly like this. And in those moments, I mean, I would have to just be absolutely blown away by something new to commit to taking on more work during those moments. But then it's funny because all of a sudden things will even out and I'll be like, oh, I'm kind of on top of my to-do list. I wonder what's coming the submission inbox. <laughs> and so, and there's not really any way to predict what that looks like. So um, I would say right this minute, I'm more in a scrambling kind of mind frame because, um, because uh, two weeks ago was my kid's spring break and we went to the beach for a week. And so I am like, that has a knock-on effect on me for sometimes a month or more after I take a break. I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit out of control and I'm a little bit trying to get back on top of things. Um, and then all of a sudden I'll find myself back on top of things and I might start poking around in my submissions inbox and see what's in there. So, I, you know... Um, I do take on new clients, but I try not to do it too often. <laughs> That's my current, my current mode. Well, since you're uh, in that mode right now, I appreciate all the more you're, you're making time to talk with us today. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> so, I mean, do you check your inbox on a regular basis or it literally just has to be, I've done everything else that has to be done. Now I've got time for this. Yeah, it really, it gets knocked to the lower, um, the lower portion of my list pretty often. Because in my mind, if I have, if I have an offer that I need to negotiate, or uh, if I have money that's come in that needs to be, you know, allocated or, you know, the paper, the internal paperwork that we do to um, make sure that people are getting paid their money. Or if there's an issue that, a, that an editor, sorry, that an author is having currently with an editor that needs me to step in. Those to me are things that cannot wait. Somebody saying, hey, will you represent me? I mean, it's great and it's wonderful that people um, come to me. I love that. But also, I, I cannot prioritize someone that I don't work with yet over the people that I have already committed to. So, um, yes, there are times when my time is absolutely being filled by the people I have already made promises to, <laughs> and I must prioritize those. And so, yeah, I don't look at my submissions inbox every single day. I, um, I would say um, maybe every other week I'll go in and I'll clear it out. Um, but it's something that I have to get through all of the um, urgent stuff before I can get to that. Which all the querying authors will appreciate once they're your client, that that, that, that is how you operate. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the thing, I never, ever want to be in a position where I've made promises to people that I can't keep, you know, or where I've, it's a big responsibility to take on a client because you, you have to uphold your end of the bargain. And if you don't have the time to do that, it's, you're not doing someone any favors by taking 
by taking somebody on who who you don't have the bandwidth to pay attention to. Um, how uh, how many clients do you have on your list at the moment? Um, I think I have about about thirty five maybe in total, and not all of them are super active all the time. Um, you know, some everyone works at a different pace, and some people are really prolific and ping up in my inbox frequently. And some people just kind of beaver away in the background or, or um, have other things going on, day jobs and whatnot that prevent them from focusing on, on their creative work all the time. And um, yeah, so some, some clients are more active than others, I would say, um, in that list. So you don't need to talk to all 35 every day or even no. every week? No, no, not at all. And there, there are some people who, you know, especially say like a novelist uh, who's writing a novel, they're not going to be popping up every day to say, hey, I, I wrote another 10 pages, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll sell a book and then there will be some months of them working with their editor and getting that book ready for publication. That takes a really long time. And then they're also in the background writing their next manuscript. You know, you may go six months or even a year before you see that person's next book. And then it's time to clear out some time to read the novel and um, comment on it. And, and that's a big job, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't pop up every day. So, um, and again, those kind of, they go in kind of funny cycles, like all of a sudden I won't have, you know, novels landing on my desk for a while. And then all of a sudden, like everybody will be like, I just wrote something new <laughs> and I'll have all this stuff to read. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it would be great if everybody could coordinate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just watching. I know you you represent uh, Christina uh, soon torn back, but, yep. uh, and she her output is extremely impressive. Just from the outside, it looks yes. like you hear from her about at least once a month. I've written something new and incredible. It's impressive from the inside too. Let me tell you, <laughs> that woman is a force. <laughs> She's amazing. She I I really don't know how she finds the time for it all, but she writes a lot and. Um, she um, she hits all her deadlines. She's she takes on so much, and but she also is thoughtful about it. You know, there have been moments where she's said, "I can't, I can't do this one." You know, like we we have to say no to this, and um, and so I think it's important, uh, no matter who you are and no matter what your output is, I think it's important to know yourself and know what your limitations are and be straight about it. Um, with the people that you're working with. So um, that's something that I appreciate about her is that when she does get to her limit, which takes a while, she, she'll she say, okay, that's enough. <laughs> let's, let's pause. <laughs> well, not her uh, specifically, but when you're, when you're dealing with a client, do you want to be involved in their creative process talking about what, what their next project should be? Or do you want to let them work on that on their own and come back to you? I tend to sort of take my cues from my clients, really, because people have different wants and needs as, you know, as creative people, I think um, some people want a lot of input and some people just want to come to you with something fully formed. I will say that, you know, 
in the same way that an author, once they've, you know, if they're too close to their work, it's hard to see it really with fresh eyes. Um, I get that way too, if I've seen a manuscript too many times. So I try to discourage, um, you know, some of the clients I have who do want a lot of input, who want to ask me at every stage, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? I try to discourage them from sending um, manuscripts to me more than a couple of times um, it, it, because then I just get in the same position where I'm like, I don't know if this is any better or not. <laughs> and so <laughs> I would prefer to keep myself a little bit fresh. I would prefer my clients to do more of that nitty gritty work with their um, critique groups um, and then come to me when they think, you know, so a lot of times I do have uh, people who will say, I have these five ideas in mind, which ones do you think have the most potential? And I do enjoy, uh, and I think it's productive to give that guidance sometimes because then you can be putting your effort into the right or the, or the projects that feel like they have the most potential to sell, you know? And then I want them to go away and do all that work with their critique groups and everything, and then come back to me when they really think they have a polished something. And then I might make some comments and ask them to make some changes and read it again, maybe once, maybe twice. But at that point, I would hope that it would be ready to send out to editors because at that point, my, my ability to see it clearly starts to decline. Um, it doesn't right. always happen that way. <laughs> once you've gone through a manuscript and provided your, in, your input editorial, and then you get some, some joker editor who has different ideas, does yeah. that become personal for you at all? Or is it just- No, no, because my, my role, and this is, um, I, I think I made a reference earlier to kind of trying to figure out how much editorial input I should or shouldn't have as an editor and how that's different as an agent and how that's different from the input that I had as an editor. You know, there was a learning curve when I first started because I was approaching it with an editorial mindset of like, we need to get in there and decide, is it this word or that word? What I'm doing as an agent is much more developmental and much less technical in terms of edits because Every editor is going to have their own opinion about um, flow and uh, sentence structure and technical, you know, conventions. Every house has their own house style, and I can't know what all of those things are. So, um, and that's not that's not my job anyway to polish it for publication. My job is um, to help um, identify any really big issues that I think editors will object to or that will scare editors off <laughs> and work out those broad issues. So things like, um, is the pace right? Is the opening engaging? Um, do I, do I believe the main character? You know, is this convinced? Is this a convincing kid or not? Um, did I believe the ending made sense, or was this part a little bit too convenient that this character popped up coincidentally, or you know, something like that? So I'm looking at really broad, um, broad developmental sort of like the big brushstrokes, um, and trying to get those in a shape where 
And any editor who sees the project is going to think, oh, I love this and my job is manageable. <laughs> um, I don't want anyone to read it and think, oh, I love this, but that whole ending just didn't ring true. Next. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it's a, it's a sort of a different editorial role. Um, so I try not to take people down a rabbit hole of my personal um, style, I guess, is, would be the right word. Um, because I know that, because the point is to find an editor. The point is to find an editor who is going to do all that. And so I'm just making sure that there are no glaring errors. There are no big reasons to say no to the project. There was someone, and this is so embarrassing. I, I think it was Elizabeth Law, but I'm not 100%. We'll go ahead and we'll give her credit. We talked about uh, when you submit something to an editor, you want to leave just enough meat on there that there's something for them to do. For them to do. <laughs> Yeah, and probably, you know, uh, I bet different editors um, are in different positions, right? So uh, for some people, yes, they do want to put their mark on it. But also, you know, some editors are also like the editorial director of their department, and they have a lot of administrative duties, and they're hiring people for their departments, and they're, you know, talking to the um, board about this and that. And that's, you know, that's a huge part of their job. And being able to edit something is like this um, very small portion of the time that they have during the day. And so they, they may not be in a position to like overhaul a book. Um, so some, you know, some people, some editors may want to spend their time doing like doing that, but that's not the luxury that they have. So um, I think I think editors do want to feel like they're doing something uh, to the work, but also um, more and more, I think people are overloaded and they they don't always have the time to do that. So a lot of times they're really looking for something pretty fully formed. You know, they don't they don't want to have to go back and and um, do that really fundamental kind of developmental stuff. They want to kind of really get in and just kind of say, "Oh, okay, this paragraph. Let's let's work on on you know on a much um, more technical level than um, than these kind of big broad ideas. All that broad stuff has to be in place really before they're going to be able to convince." their um, acquisitions teams to take a project on anyway. Um, you know, I think when, when, a, when a book goes to acquisitions, most of the time for most companies, that means a big room full of editors, but also like publicists and marketing people and salespeople and accounts people. And um, they don't all have an editorial eye. And so if, if a book isn't reading right <laughs> to the people whose job it, who, who have other jobs besides analyzing the text, um, it, can, it can fail to make it past the committee. So you wanna make sure that the, the shape of the book is in place before it gets to that stage. Um, which is another reason that I think a lot of editors uh, these days will ask for pre-acquisitions editorial work. Um, that happens pretty often, I find, that 
editors will say, oh, I really like this, but I have some comments before I can show it to my team. And then of course, you don't know if that's gonna result in an offer or not, but you kind of, my policy is to follow every lead to its natural conclusion. <laughs> Well, theoretically, not theoretically, in, in practice, I imagine one of the reasons an editor might want to prioritize a submission uh, from Stephanie Fretwell Hill is because they know that you've already gone through with your years of editorial experience. You've already done the, the, the at least the, the, the basics. You're not going to send them something that's not indeed publishable and not, and not ideally suited for them, right? Right. And that's, you know, that is a big part of... Um, of what an agent, any agent really has to do over the course of many years, I guess, is to develop, um, you know, you develop a rapport with those editors who know that if you're sending them something, it's going to be of a particular quality. Um, you know, that's not to say that everything that comes out of my inbox is perfect, but that, um, you know, I like to think that a lot of the editors that I work with, when they see my name pop up, they'll think, oh, this is going to be at least worth reading, even if it isn't for me. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a look because they trust that I'm going to be sending work of a particular quality, which is one of the reasons that I, you know, as an agent, I can't promise to send out absolutely everything that my clients write. Sometimes people write duds and you have to kind of be like, I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't send this out because it it um, it pulls it pulls away from that reputation that I feel like I need to build, you know, or that trust that I need to build with editors um, that that keeps them wanting to receive submissions from me. If I send them a string of not great things, then they're going to think, oh you know, she's kind of hit or miss. Sometimes I like what she sends and sometimes I'm not sure, you know. Um, and I definitely, when I was an editor, I definitely received uh, things from particular agents where I thought, I don't know what's going on there, but we do not share the same sensibility. And I, and, and so the opposite would be true. Whenever I would see a particular name pop up, I would think, ugh. <laughs> no, I don't think I'm going to want this. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I, I definitely always want to be on the other side of that. Like, oh, good. <laughs> Something from Stephanie. <laughs> you don't want to jeopardize the integrity of all your clients to humor the whim of one. Exactly. Exactly. And ultimately, it's not a good use of anyone's time. You know, if you, if, if I really deep down in my gut feel that this is not going to sell, it is not worth my time and it's not worth my client's time for me to pretend like it might. Um, you know, and, and uh, like I said before, I do only make a commission on what I sell. So if I'm sending work around that I truly in my heart believe is not going to sell, I'm doing that for free and I have other things I need to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's it's not it's not a great way to operate, and it's hard. You know, you get you get you're friendly with your cl clients, and you have a good relationship, and it's hard to disappoint people. You know, nobody wants to hear you say, "I don't, I'm not into this." You know, <laughs> you know that your client has worked really hard on on um, 
on writing something and and it's uncomfortable to say i'm sorry it's just not up to snuff but sometimes you have to do that well wasn't that i would think that would be better to hear that from your agent up front rather than from one star reviews on down the road or exactly <laughs> exactly or more realistically just years and years and years of knocking on doors and never never ending up with a publication deal at which point you can say, well, what what's your critique partner say? That they let you send me this? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you need a new critique group. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, something I've been uh, asking uh, everybody published about is we've had some high profile exits uh, in, in terms of ed editorial assistants and, and other folks who've, who've left their uh, who've left their publishing houses and, and been very vocal about reasons why on Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. elsewhere. And we know that the turnover has been a little bit high in publishing, but it's been high everywhere because, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic and people are reprioritizing what matters to them. Um, in that environment, between that and consolidation of publishing and couple that with the fact that you're not in New York, how are you able to maintain relationships with houses and maintain um maintain a relationship with individual editors if that turnover is is remaining high with without giving away your secret sauce of course well i mean i, I would say yes turnover is high and yes consolidations are happening all the time and that sort of changes the landscape but i do feel that you know i've been working in publishing now for um 18 years and there's always a revolving door of characters in different publishing houses and they're always moving here and moving there and changing careers and new people coming in and that that is just part of it and keeping up with who is where and when and what they want is is a huge part of the job of being an agent and it's a huge um, part of what we as an agency or any agency does is we share those resources with each other. So we keep a lot of records about who is where and when and why <laughs> and what they do and do, do not want. Um, we uh, have, you know, that's sort of the power of being in a, a group of agents is that you can share all that, uh, all that resource with each other. And um, so, yeah, you are just have to stay on top of it all the time. It's, a, it's something we do daily. We talk about who is where and we update our records, update our records, update our records all the time. And um, not being in New York, I have never found that to be a disadvantage, really. I feel like ultimately editors want really good work and they don't care if they have had lunch with you or if they haven't had lunch with you. That's not really, they're not buying uh, manuscripts because they're friends with the agent. Now being friends with the agent is helpful um, because you're able to sometimes have more slightly more casual conversations I think about uh, manuscripts that you probably couldn't have with someone you didn't know very well so an editor who I know really well if they um, say they reject a manuscript and say oh no this one's not for me if I know them really well I can ask for more information or I could call them and say you know get, get kind of a more straight response of like oh well what did you know what was it that bothered you or um, 
I could even show them something that isn't fully formed yet and say, this probably still needs some work, but I just wanted to gauge your reaction. I might be able to do that with an editor who I have a really good relationship with, but if it's the first time I've ever met the editor, I'm not going to ask them for those kinds of favors. Um, and so it's a little bit more uh, cold, I guess, when you uh, when you don't know the editor as well. But ultimately, they just want to find manuscripts that they love, and they it doesn't matter if it's coming from me or somebody else. If they love the manuscript, they will want to work on it. Um, so I think for me, the main thing is just maintaining a list of high quality and always, always, always being kind and professional with everyone that I encounter. And eventually, yes, there are people who you just find over time that you've had a long relationship with. It just happens naturally. And in some cases, the people that I've had long relationships with, you know, date back to when I was still an editor and they were like an assistant at such and such. And then you just happen to stay in touch and you now they're at this place and you're at this place and now, oh, now they're the editorial director of such and such. It just happens that your careers are sort of maturing at the same rate. And then you have, you know, a nice <clears throat> rapport with someone and then if that person moves to another house, you, that relationship moves to the other house. You, you don't lose the relationship because they've taken a different role. Um, and I, you know, sometimes people pop up that I knew way back from my Walker London days. And that's always kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you stay in an industry long enough and people will start to become You'll, you'll have relationships with people for sure. This is another reason it's crucial not to be a jerk because that will definitely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Being not being a jerk, I would say is like the number one goal all the time <laughs> for, and it should be for everyone. <laughs> and I love that move. Let me, let me gauge your interest in a submission or interest in a manuscript because it's not an official submission and yeah. you know that they might be interested and you get the feedback. That's, Look at that. That's a next level agent thing right there. That's yeah. <laughs> or sometimes I could even ask, you know, say I haven't even acquired a, a client yet. If I had something that I was sort of on the fence about, I could ask a few of my editor friends, like, are you seeing a lot of things like this? Um, you know, I might decide whether or not that's something that I want to take on if, if, you know, or if I, here, like, uh, you know, we've really had a lot of those lately, then I might decide to pass on something. Uh, and I want to make sure before I forget that we definitely talk a little bit about Red Fox Literary. So I always want to give uh, an agent opportunity to tell us of all the agents, uh, agencies out there that the esteemed audience could be submitting to, mm -hmm. why is Red Fox Literary the one that they should have high on their, high on their prioritized list of, of agencies? Okay, well, um, Red Fox, one of the reasons that I was really attracted to Red Fox as an agent um, is because it is small, it is personal, it is full of very kind people who really want the best for, the best outcomes for everyone involved. That's always the priority. Um, I, I think that 
some people are probably attracted to a really big New York agency in a big shiny building, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and some of those bigger agencies have a lot of resources at their disposal. But um, I myself, when it comes to the, the jobs that I've had in publishing, I've always been attracted to the sort of smaller, quirkier um, companies that allow people to sort of follow their passions and do what feels important um, rather than just what kind of uh, affects the bottom line. <laughs> and I would say that Red Fox falls into that category. We're not, we're not taking on clients and books because we think we're going to make a fortune. We're taking them on because we care deeply about them and because we want to see them reach readers. And, um, and so, yeah, I would say, uh, I would say those are good reasons to, to go to the people at Red Fox. I'm assuming you're not opposed to making fortunes. <laughs> no, I mean, if something makes a fortune, I'm not going to say no, but that's not the primary goal necessarily. <laughs> uh, does Red Fox, do you negotiate? I'm assuming you, you've got some sort of hand or you're kept keeping up with what's going on with the foreign rights. Are you doing film and, and television? What other rights aside? Yeah, from so um, we have, uh, we have a, a foreign rights agency in London who handles our list. Um, and when it comes to film, um, we have, you know, a handful of our own contacts, but ultimately I think if something has really genuine sort of film potential, we would often try to find a film sub agent to, um, to handle those sales. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are always, um, there are a lot of sub agents out there <laughs> and, and they're the, those are the resources that we tend to draw on for those, um, those kinds of rights. Gotcha. So even though they're not necessarily in-house, you know who to go to, you know how yeah. to make sure that that's going to be handled well for your clients. Exactly. Yeah. And a student audience knows that I ask everybody uh, in publishing uh, about diversity in publishing, because we know uh -huh. there's been a movement for we need diverse books uh, that got, because we needed diverse books and we still need diverse books. Yeah. Publishing does not have a great track record when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Uh, and, and I always want to stick up for publishing and point out that America doesn't have a great right. <laughs> for diversity and inclusion and not to right. pick on publishing because that's where all the thinking and the, and the learning and the teaching was going on. Right. But I'm, I'm talking to publishing. I want to see where we're at, what we're doing. So what are you seeing uh, overall for publishing and increasing diversity? And what is Red Fox Literary doing to increase diversity in traditional publishing? Well. Um, I mean, I definitely feel like there is more and more of a push from editors to see um, to see work by more diverse creators um, and featuring more diverse characters that that has been I mean, that's been sort of steadily increasing over time, but then definitely more recently, I feel like um, a, a lot of editors will say in their descriptions that they're prioritizing um, work by diverse creators. Um, at Red Fox, I mean, I, I can't necessarily speak for the other agents, but I can uh, speak for myself and say that I have found that um, 
if I am passive about something that I want to change on my list, it will not change. So at, at a certain point, I decided I wanted to take on more middle grade. Middle grade is just not going to knock on my door. <laughs> like I actually have to do things to attract middle grade to me. And I also have to carve out space for more middle grade authors. I have found the same with attempting to diversify my list. And that isn't just because editors are asking for it, but because I recognize that, you know, I, it is, being an agent is one of the very few areas of power that I feel like I actually have the, um, to affect something going on in the world, right? Um, and if I use that to do, to help lift up voices or to help uh, carve out space for people who may not have otherwise had an opportunity to do so, then I feel like that's a good, uh, that's a good use of my little scrap of power in the world, right? And that is some small piece of change that I can help to affect. So, um, but if I just think in my mind, oh, I'd like to have a more diverse list, um, it will not just happen magically. Like a bunch of really excellent authors of color are not going to knock on my door just because in my mind, I thought it. I really have to uh, make a point of um, speaking at events that are, include more diverse creators. Um, you know, when I've done things like, um, it's not the Manuscript Academy, but another one called Inked Voices that I do some workshops with, you know, sometimes we will like give away a spot to a uh, um, marginalized creator um, to the workshop, something like that to try to get more exposure, you know, to, to include more people as much as possible in the kinds of events that I'm doing um, to, you know, I've done a few things for, um, we need diverse books and, you know, some of the groups like that. Those are very small ways that I've tried to, um, to expose um, a, a larger group of people, or expose myself, I guess, to a larger group of people or a more diverse group of people. But I also have to hold space on my list. I have to not get myself to a point where I am up to my eyeballs in work from white, straight, cis creators. <laughs> um, to so that when when I do have an opportunity to have a have somebody else come onto my list, that I am not just drowning. That I can that I can offer that uh, that commitment to somebody in good conscience. Um, so anyway, those are those are some of the things that I try to do, and um, and I can do more, and I hope to do more, and um, I'm you know, I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can and I'm trying to uh, make plans to do more as, as I'm able.
I can hear the passion both for increasing diversity and for books and writers in general as you're speaking to us. Um, I think that anybody who's who's heard our conversation would be, I, I can hear the queries firing off to you now. <laughs> do that. You're closed. <laughs> That's a at the moment. But I, I know that as soon as you open up again, people are going to be very excited to, to reach out to you and, yeah. and to see what you uh, what services you'd have available? I um, watched our time; it's 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 flown by. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> and I want to be respectful of, uh, of your time, but thank you so much for for making the time for me and for making the time for esteemed audience. My uh, final question for today uh, is always some variation of: if for all the writers who are watching or listening to us, um, if there was one bit of advice or as many bits of advice as you like that you can impart to them that you feel would make, would improve their chances of having success in publishing, what would you say to them? Well, um, I think it kind of goes back to the thing about being nice. Um, <laughs> I really think that this is a small industry and people, um, people do all kind of know each other at a certain point. And um, it's, it's, I think, it's always a good policy to treat people well and with kindness and, <clears throat> and also to be, um, to approach the industry with, an, with gratitude. I feel like some of the most successful people that I work with are sweetly kind of pinching themselves every day that they get to work in this industry. And I think that when you approach the industry with a sense of entitlement, um, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> I think you will go farther if you recognize how lucky you are. And if you thank the people who, um, who help contribute to your path. Uh, so that, that's what I would say is to approach people with kindness and gratitude. I think that's the perfect note to end on. <laughs> Where can esteemed audience find you online, uh, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Oh, well, I do have a Twitter account and I do have an Instagram account, but I'll tell you, I am not great with social media. <laughs> It's really like I have sort of, I could just go like months where I ignore it. <laughs> so um, I would say the best place actually is probably the Red Fox Literary um, Instagram account. I do tend to um, post quite a lot to that, um, which is, I think it's just at Red Fox Literary. Um, there is also a Red Fox uh, Twitter account, which I believe is the same at Red Fox Literary. Um, I think mine is at S. Fretwell Hill, but I don't ever use it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, those would be the best places. Just occurred to me, esteemed audience is screaming at me because I forgot a question that I ask every guest who ever comes on the show. We were so busy talking about books oh, okay. and practical matters. I forgot to ask, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? That was close. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I don't think I've ever seen either of those things. Um, I just needed to be on the record that I didn't give you a pass on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I did see either of those things, I would probably think it was something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thank you again for, for being such a tremendous guest and for, for making the time today. 
Um, esteemed audience, as always, for interviews, including a seven-question interview with uh, with our guest, Stephanie Farwell Hill, and other literary agents, authors, editors, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.